to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, everyone, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Charles Peterson, and I'm sitting here with my two co-hosts, Dr. Liam Johnson and Rick Lee. And today we are joined by Dr. Joel Reynolds, and we're talking about disabilities. We're going to get some rants and some raves and some drink orders. Lee, what's your rant or your rave, and what are you drinking today? So today I'm going to have the second most expensive bourbon that they have back there. (laughs) I feel like I've got to be careful about my expenditures you know, inflation, but I need a good bourbon. Today, I am actually ranting, and I'm ranting about Charles E. Ashley Jr., federal district court judge from the Eastern District of Tennessee. I'm ranting about Hatchley because he recently temporarily blocked the Biden administration from enforcing directives that extend civil rights protections to LGBTQ students and workers. I think all of us saw this coming the minute that Roe v. Wade was overturned, that they were coming for the gays next. But it's amazing, astonishing, horrifying how quickly it's happening. I fully expect, like many people, to see Obergefell overturned in the next Supreme Court session. But what they're doing in between is just appalling. And Hatchley, I got your name and I'm not happy. So what about you, Charles? Well, in terms of drinks, I'm going to continue my run of ethically questionable drinks, and I will be ordering a Long Beach iced tea. I know people say that doesn't exist, but I'm sticking with it because I'm nowhere near a beach. I won't be near a beach until next summer, and that's the closest I can come to a beach, and that beach is better than Lake Erie's beach. So I am ranting about the bottomless nature of human pettiness. Recently at a Sesame Place Park outside of Philadelphia, an actor in the Rosita character costume, after high-fiving a row of white children and parents, passed by two little black girls who were desperately begging for the actor's attention. They waved their hand at the two little girls and walked past them. Mm -hmm. And the look on the little girls' faces, they were absolutely crushed. You're in a costume. You're playing a character that is a simulation of a little black girl. And you can't bring it to just touch their hands for a nanosecond. So there is no bottom to the pettiness. A human being, as a great philosopher said, people are trash. <laughs> Was that great philosopher you? No. <laughs> I would quote them, but they know me, and I don't think they would appreciate me outing them that way. (laughs) Rick? So, Noelle, I will have a Paloma. It's summertime, and it's one of my favorite summertime drinks. Today, I am raving about airport bars. So I know we're the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast, but I have had the opportunity to spend a number of nights in various airport bars. And I also think they're just some of the most interesting places on earth. Today, I am really thrilled to introduce Dr. Joel Michael Reynolds, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Disability Studies at Georgetown University. He's also Senior Research Scholar at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, as well as a Senior Advisor to the Hastings Center. Joel's the author of, most recently, The Life Worth Living, Disability, Pain, and Morality. He's the founder of the Journal of the Philosophy of Disability, as well as a series with Oxford University Press titled Oxford Studies in Disability, Ethics, and Society. As you could tell, Joel writes a lot on philosophy of disability, as well as, of all things, Martin Heidegger. (laughs) (laughs) No comment. We're thrilled that Joel walked into the bar this evening to talk with us about disability and philosophy. So, Joel, first of all, welcome. And what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? It's so great to be here. I love the podcast. I'm going to be drinking an old Cuban. It's a classic that I've been finding. Finding new love for yet again recently. Nice, nice. I'm gonna be ranting about the lack of high-speed rail in the United States. I've been traveling Europe the last few months and have been astonished at how good the train systems are in many, many different places. 
And it's just very sad that the U.S. has essentially no train infrastructure. Here, here. I just saw a post on, I can't remember if it was on Instagram or Twitter, but you place a dot where New York City is, and then you draw a circle of a 250-mile radius, and it's like, any flights in this area are a policy failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you can do that with lots of U.S. cities, multiple yeah. U.S. Yeah. cities. <laughs> yeah. So, Rick, lead us into today's conversation. This is a topic that I've been thinking a lot about having us talk about. And I think that one of the greatest aspects of philosophy in the 20th century is that we're coming to recognize more and more the number of occlusions that have occurred in and often actually constitute philosophy and its history. Think of the work that feminist theory, queer theory, race theory has done in pointing out these occlusions. And disability theory is exposing yet another occlusion in philosophy. And disability theory, I think, is interesting because it works not only to bring a theory to disability, but also to expose the ableist presuppositions of philosophy and to alter the way in which we all practice philosophy. So I'm really excited today to talk about disability and philosophy. start in the most general way I could possibly think of. Why do we need a theory of disability at all? In other words, is there something that disability theory provides that isn't otherwise accomplished, let's say, just by social action, political action, organization, and so on? I think that's a great opening question. And I'll put my cards on the table that I just think there is a necessary and inevitable relationship between theory and praxis and having better theoretical tools, whether those are concepts, principles, whatever it might be, assist us in doing things in the world. It is interesting to me that there has been a movement over the last eight to 10 years of what's called conceptual engineering. And this is just a new word for something that philosophers, of course, have always done. (laughs) (laughs) And I really like the group of people who are engaging in this because many of them are directly talking with and doing work in social sciences and even the natural sciences and showing how in case after case after case, having better conceptual distinctions, having better concepts, having better theories assists us in inquiry of all sorts, whether it's in theoretical physics, whether it's in qualitative sociology, you name it. So I do think that having theoretical work about disability is a boon and one that we need to continue to contribute resources to going forward. I have a question, and I'll admit at the outset that like a lot of professional philosophers, I don't feel like I have my feet underneath me well enough with disability studies. And so I kind of want to just ask a definitional question. Charles is going to make fun of me because I always ask the definitional questions. (laughs) The Johnsonian (laughs) question, we call it. (laughs) But what is a working definition of disability? Uh, That's actually an extremely hard question to answer. I guess that that shouldn't be surprising to a room of philosophers. Our hotel bar, excuse me, filled with philosophers, (laughs) (laughs) to correct myself there. I will attempt to begin. This is a provisional beginning to answer that question by pointing towards what's called the social model of disability. That's actually a bit misleading. There is no one social model. There are social models, plural, but just as a matter of introductory stuff. On the social model of disability, a distinction is made between impairment, the way one's body is atypical in any number of ways at the level of form, function, you name it, and disability, which refers to negative responses, social responses, institutional responses to impairments. And on this admittedly simplistic definition and admittedly simplistic distinction between disability and impairment, you can immediately start to see the world in different ways. 
And you immediately start to think about what disability is in different ways, because unlike how most of us, in my experience, this seems to be true across lots of cultural differences, geographic differences, most of us are taught that disability means, oh, something is wrong with someone's body. Mm -hmm. They are suffering or in pain due to some tragedy or misfortune. And the moment you have the social model in your mind, you can see, oh, but actually, there is no such thing as just some pure fact about the body. Bodies are always in relationship with an environment that is either providing affordances for them to do certain things or is not providing those affordances. And as humans, as one of the most highly social organisms on this earth, a lot of the way that people find themselves in the world is due to how we treat one another, how we build our institutions, how we modify the environment. And all that can change. A lot of that. Not all that. A lot of that can change. <laughs> what I like about this rough sketch of the social model, and by the way, since you haven't yet, let me plug again Joel's book, The Life Worth Living, because in chapter three, he does go through a bunch of different definitions and approaches to what disability is. In a moment, Joel, I'm going to push you because you do come to your own conclusion about this. And so I think it would be important that we talk about that. But what I like about the sketch you just laid out is it shows that disability, unlike impairment, is, as you put it, a relation to an environment. And that environment is both a physical environment. So, for example, stairs versus ramps, yes. sound versus images and so on. And our social world also can put up ways in which there is a mismatch between one's body and a social environment, not yeah. just a physical environment. Yeah, that's similar to what I was hearing. I think what really piqued my interest in the description that you just gave, though, is that it seems as if contrary to, I think, average Joe on the streets understanding of disability, that disability is not a property of some subject, hmm. but that disability is a value judgment. Yes. A yes. social world and a physical world and a political world has indicated that an impairment is not going to be accommodated. Yeah, it seems to me it's a policy decision. Yeah. Someone at a certain point decides to normatize a certain type of body and make conscious decisions to regulate the world along that definition. Yeah, one of the things that I think, especially when people are first getting into disability studies, the social model has been around for such a long time, and it's very easy, on the one hand, to see why it's so insightful and why it has been so politically powerful. And the other hand, it's very easy for philosophers in particular to push against it. Mm. The concept of impairment, especially, there's been a lot of push to say, is this just purely naturalistic, like atypicality? How do you explain this without having to double down? You know, it gets very, very messy. But keep in mind that even if the social model can and should be critiqued in all sorts of ways, and even if we can come up and should come up with better theories of disability, it is still the case that I think it marks one of the most radical transformations in the way that we think about the human in at least modern history. Because one of the implications is that making claims about any particular individual at the level of what we think they can or cannot do and attaching value to that. That is something that we have to discuss and that we make up and that we set the world up in that way. It's not written in stone. The body's worth is not something you can read off of the flesh or the way someone moves or how they look. That worth is something we negotiate. And obviously, I hope for a world in which we start to treat people regardless of the way we think about their body heuristically on its own, start to treat them more equitably. So I think in common language, we tend to talk about ability and disability as antonyms. And I'm wondering if, given what you've just said, that really what we should be talking about is bodies that are accommodated and bodies that are not accommodated. Yeah, the claim you just made is a beautiful way of putting the argument that Rosemary Garland Thompson makes, and the article is entitled Misfits. And one of her primary arguments in that piece, which I highly recommend, is what you just said. <laughs> like, the ability-disability <laughs> distinction misleads us. Yeah, It almost inevitably misleads us. And however you finesse the dis, you know, maybe you try and take all the negativity out of it so it's not pejorative, and you try and kind of formalize it. It's still the case that what we really should be talking about, Garland Thompson argues, is fit. 
and misfit. Mm -hmm. And that will better attune us to the actual relationships that we're presumably trying to pick out when we use the language of ability and disability. I wanted to go back to your point, Joel, about the values that get placed upon certain types of bodies. And I like the idea of creating positive valuation versus negative valuation by being able to say, what can bodies do? What are the possibilities of the body? And thinking about this idea of misfits, beginning to really challenge what may be the inherent limits of this dominant valuation or this dominant way of thinking about the body and its capabilities. Like the misfit opens up a whole new range of possibilities. Yeah, there's something profoundly radical about this way of thinking. And the phrase you just said, what can a body do? I'm glad you said that because there's a reference there not only to Spinoza, where I can't remember that line, I think it's in the ethics, where he's like, no one yet knows what a body can do. But also a more recent book came out by Sarah Hindren. I think it came out in 2017. And that's the title, What Can a Body Do? And Sarah is an artist, a designer, and an academic. And in this book tries to show how especially the built environment, whether it's homes or you name it, can so profoundly modify what we think someone can or cannot do. And her example is Steve Sailing, S-A-L-I-N-G. He's an architect who I can't remember exactly the reasons, but he went from, you know, a kind of generically able-bodied person to someone who mainly can just move his head a little bit. And he controls a laptop that can pick up these very slight variations in where his eyes are tracking. And then he uses that to control this house and to communicate and to do everything, as far as I can tell, <laughs> that I do in my day-to-day -day life, and does it all because he has found a way for his built environment to sustain what we even 40, 50 years ago would have thought he couldn't do any of this. And he has a house that's called Sailing House, where multiple people who have similar levels of, let's go with impairments, live a full life doing all sorts of stuff because they're in a house, quite literally a house, a building that provides affordances for their particular way of being in the world. So I really like this language of affordance, and I guess the opposite would be something like denial, because it really does show the way in which, and I think this is a point you keep coming back to over and over again, if we use the word disabled, it has to be in an active or no, in a passive sense, I guess, someone is made disabled yeah. and they're made disabled by the environment. Yeah. That being made disabled is a series of denials of access and options that, to go back to a point Lee made earlier, do not have their origin and philosophical ground in the individual subject, yes. but rather in a relation or, in fact, a denial of relation. And so there is a way in which I think disability is also an incredible denial of relationality. One of the ways of talking about this that I've started to adopt, it seems a little awkward at first, but I'm getting used to it, is to speak in terms of abilitation and debilitation. Hmm. And the switch to debility as opposed to disability, I'm borrowing from Jasper Puar's use of the term, who has this fascinating book called The Right to Maim, where one of the things she's trying to put on the radar of the larger disability studies and disability activist community is all of these nation states around the world that the goal of their police or military forces is specifically to impair whatever the group is that they're going after. Yeah. This is very yeah. obvious if you look at documents relating to how Palestinians are treated. This is very obvious when you look at certain documents of local level police force and, you know, all the evidence is there for this. And she's like, hey, we need to have a way to say this is bad. Debilitating someone is bad without them thereby saying that to be disabled or being impaired and or disabled as a result of debilitation is necessarily in and of itself bad. And this debate mm -hmm. has also played out in analytic philosophy pockets between Elizabeth Barnes and some people. And that language, to circle back to the beginning, the use of the language of habilitation and debilitation, I think, already helps us in thinking about the temporal, the process aspect of the nature of disability. <laughs> and it helps us keep that at the foreground as we're thinking through these complicated issues. One thing I want to throw out right now, because it's inevitable that in the listener's mind, they're thinking about this. Usually at this point in the conversation, someone goes, but what about chronic pain? 
Or what about someone who has cancer, stage four? Or what about someone who has late stage Alzheimer's? Or what about juvenile Tay-Sachs, where we have no way to actually intervene, and in 95% of the cases, the kid will live a life of pain and suffering and die by like four years old? All these examples come up, and they're like, clearly, in those cases, Joel, is it not true that there is something bad and something wrong with the individual's body, regardless of the environment around them, doesn't that prove that your relational account is false? And my response to that is very simple. It's no, it doesn't prove it's false. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done, Joel. (laughs) And and then I walk away. That's how I debate. Like, waiter, we'll take our bill. (laughs) Right. I always carry a mic around and I just am dropping it constantly because I I don't feel like actually having a discussion. No, I say, no, it's not true because even in all of those cases, what did I just describe? Every one of those cases, I described a situation, let's go with a condition, that modern medicine at this particular point in time hasn't figured out how to deal with. It is entirely possible that at some point down the road, we find a way to have a treatment that acts on the drivers of something like Tay-Sachs, such that someone could be born with it and still live an okay life. And if that sounds weird, I have receipts. Think about trisomy 13 and 18. Yeah. Or Edwards and Patau yeah. syndromes, up as late as 2018, you would be taught that that's a fatal condition, that it's just incompatible with life. And you would have OBGYNs or other doctors saying to parents, your child is going to die. That's not true anymore. That's actually yeah. just false. There are now cases of kids sometimes living to 10, 15. It's not clear what's going to happen yet because we have developed new biomedical and other sorts of means such that people born with those conditions can live. So I think even in those cases, you can point to the organism-environment relationship and see that it's never purely about how someone's body in and of itself is. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. So, Joel, I appreciate the examples that you provided in the last segment in terms of thinking about not the limits of the body, but the limits of the circumstance in which a body finds itself. And I want to ask you your thoughts about the role and the place of technology. Can we begin to think about technology as being more than just a tool, but now expanding the ways in which we think about subjectivity? Yeah. Can we really think about technology merging with becoming a part of the body? I love that question. And I like the way you phrased it because it already sets up some scaffolding so that the transhumanists can't just roll up and be like, yeah. Yeah, we're going to be brains in a vat. (laughs) That whole discourse drives me up a wall, as you might be able to tell. One of the things that I wish was on people's radar more these days, it kind of had its heyday in maybe the 90s and aughts, and it's less popular. But there's a famous essay called The Extended Mind by Andy Clark and David Chalmers. And what they're up to is admittedly actually quite narrow. They're trying to do a tiny little move in philosophy of mind. Wait, are you saying analytic philosophers tend to be narrow? Calcipines! <laughs> no, okay. I would never make such a generalization. I, well, I would. <laughs> note for listeners, I will. I'll co-sign on that with Lee. There are some cases in which that's true, Rick. Some. Big analytic philosophy call us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Don't call us. So even though what they're up to in some ways is narrow, I adore the argument, and I think it expands in all sorts of ways to thinking about something like the extended body. And I just think it is true on some very deep philosophical level that my memory, for example, is not limited to the gray matter of my brain. It's not even limited to my individual body as an organism. It extends to my computer thank God, to Google (laughs) Calendar, and it extends to my entire social network. There's all sorts of things Mm -hmm. my mother remembers on my behalf. And I think this way of thinking about the quote-unquote relationship between, let's say, the human and technology 
this opens us onto the right path, say, ontologically. Well, I find that interesting for two reasons. And I want to go back to another part of the scaffolding Charles set up there, namely his use of the word tool. Mm. It seems to me we use all sorts of, well, if we thought about it, we would call tools that, in fact, we don't call tools in our everyday life, in our environment. And in some ways, if I think about my mind as like a mind that is somehow independent from my body and yada, 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 then in fact, every single organ of my body is just a tool. (laughs) And so the question is, why is the skin, the outside of my flesh, why is that such a definitive boundary of what constitutes me as an individual and my own subjectivity? I suspect that there's some kind of essentialism that would have to be at play there in order for the outside of my flesh to function as that boundary. Yeah. And so I think about a philosopher like Mirlo-Ponty, who is constantly trying to show the ways in which even the flesh is always in relation to, I was going to say an outside, but it's in relation to an outside such that there is no longer an inside or an outside that is easily discernible. Exactly. It breaks the binary down. Yeah, that's the whole phenomenological tradition since Husserl, right? Is that we're being towards the world, really. All consciousness is consciousness of something, and that of relationship is where all the magic happens. (laughs) (laughs) And you guys want to make fun of him for studying some Heidegger. See that? See how that all comes around? (laughs) But okay, so here, then don't your Heideggerian friends get worried about this support of technology? Or is this understanding of technology, one that still takes seriously Heidegger's critique of, what should we call it in English, technicity, the kind of inframing that technology does? Das Gestell. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't think Heidegger's best work is what he says about technology. Here, here. Oh my God. Let's just stop. Mike just dropped. Yeah. (laughs) Season five is in the can. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) Heidegger was wrong about a lot of things. Uh, Newsflash. Um, And again, we will stop now. (laughs) And in scene. (laughs) Please visit our Patreon page. (laughs) Even though I don't think Heidegger's best work is his stuff on technology, the idea that one of the primary modalities that humans have towards objects in their environment is one of mere instrumental use. Mm -hmm. I do think that insight is correct. It does seem to me that capitalist modes of production in particular lend themselves toward that way of orienting oneself in one's environment. And insofar as that's the dominant way of relating to what's around us, we're relating to things, as the later Heidegger would put it, that's a problem. But there is a parochialism, a quietism, and a almost Luddite nature to some of the other <laughs> ways that he extrapolates from that argument that really bothered me. So yeah, I'll give him a tiny bit of credit for part of the argument. But I wonder if it's not even worse than that, this critique of instrumentalism, which I also agree with, not necessarily from Heidegger's perspective, but mostly Horkheimer's perspective, but still it seems like there's something deeply ableist about it in the sense that there is a way in which every time I reach my hand out to the doorknob in order to open it, my arm and my hand is an instrument. Mm. And yet to say I relate to my hand merely instrumentally, I could see all sorts of problems. Okay, well now what happens if I use a piece of technology in order to reach out for the doorknob or another device that will open the door for me? That that's technology does not seem to fundamentally change the relationship I have to myself, I have to the door, and the ways in which I interact with my environment. But if I could just jump in here, I don't think it's just about your relationship to your body, which stops at the skin, and your relationship to the door. It's also about the world Mm. that makes that relationship meaningful Mm. in one way or another and often makes that relationship meaningful in a way that gets value judged as able or disabled to interact with that door in that way. 
Joel said that the transhumanist arguments frustrate him. I personally love them, but I will <laughs> say that one of the great things about transhumanist discourse is it does focus us on exactly how the world is built such that we can lead good lives or lead less than good lives in it. And I think that in the last segment, you were mentioning that there are many diseases currently where most people would agree that you cannot lead a good life under the these actual physical bodily conditions, but that may just be because we haven't developed the medical technologies to make the world accommodate those things. I mean, I'm a diabetic and a hundred years ago, you would just die from diabetes. That's just what would happen. I mean, currently with the price of insulin, you pretty much are going to die of diabetes also, (laughs) but you see what I'm saying. Sorry to pivot a little bit, but I do want to pivot to what sometimes get called invisible disabilities. So I'm thinking about things like neurodivergent conditions. I'm thinking about things like diabetes, things like, honestly, now long COVID. There are all kinds of things that we currently don't have the medical technologies to make the world easily navigable with those conditions. But it certainly isn't impossible that at some point we might consider having long COVID or having diabetes or being neurodivergent, just like having freckles or having red hair. I think that's a great question. And this brings us back full circle in some ways to the opening discussion of why do you need a theory of disability? And what even uses the theory? And, you know, one of the more concrete answers is that at least for particular purposes in a particular context, we need to have some sense of what counts as a disability because it changes how we're going to relate to people and groups. If long COVID, let's say there was some, not that anything has ever passed through our Congress and Senate, but let's say they actually passed something (laughs) that said, oh yeah, the ADA doesn't apply to long COVID. Oh my God, the ramifications of that, that way of carving up the concept of disability, in this case, in a legal sense relative to anti-discrimination law, has massive implications in the world. And there's been debates, you know, going back to the very beginning of disability studies in the late 70s and early 80s, there's always been these debates of like, aren't we excluding people with invisible disabilities? What about people with disabilities who pass, right, who pass as able-bodied? Sometimes they're doing so consciously, sometimes not. Where is the line between someone who says, oh, yeah, I'm disabled and proud and someone who's like, I got cancer last month and I'm going to die. Like, I'm not proud. You know, like there's all these debates. All of this just further reinforces that we need to think more carefully about how we draw these lines. We need to be quite open to redrawing these boundaries, perceiving them to be porous. And this is also a plug for why I think we have to be pluralists about the meaning of disability. No one theory, I think, will ever capture the phenomenon we're trying to pick out in the world in these cases. I think we actually are going to need multiple theories for multiple purposes of disability. But it also seems to me that we're philosophy as a whole to think through these questions. It would have a fundamental impact on theories of subjectivity, theories of embodiment. It could really profoundly alter some of our most close closely held, to quote the Supreme Court right-wing assholes, some of our most closely (laughs) held beliefs. I'm really glad you said that, Rick, and put it that strongly, because I find myself saying often, everyone should be studying philosophy of disability. Every philosopher should have familiarity with this field, because I dare you to give me a political theory without it having an implicit concept of ability and disability mm-hmm. at play. You give me a theory of subjectivity. I promise you it's at play. You could go through this with almost any domain. Obviously, I'll leave out logic and pure mathematics. Then maybe you don't need to study philosophy of disability. But for edification, you should as a human, even if it's not, <laughs> you know. But already just the last 30 years of literature in philosophy of disability and the last 50 plus years of literature in disability studies, there are are so many profound resources and radically generative ways of thinking that everyone, I think, in the humanities and social sciences should be paying attention and digging their teeth into the materials. So, Joel, what I like and what's been knocking on the door in my head 
are the ways in which the work that you're doing really moves across disciplinary paths. And if yeah. you could give us some sense of the bodies of knowledge and perspectives and methodologies that get employed as we talk about disability studies. Yeah, the history usually goes that what is now called the Society for Disability Studies started in 1982. Its founders were Daryl Evans, Nora Gross, Steve Hay, Gary Kiger, John Seidel, Jessica Shear, and Irving Kenneth Zola. My lineage goes through Zola because Zola worked with Rosemary Garland Thompson at Brandeis University, and then I worked with uh, Rosemary Garland Thompson at Emory, and then lo and behold, here we are today. <laughs> when that organization started... You had scholars in sociology, you had some people whose primary training was in literary and cultural studies, and from the very beginning, this was already an interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary enterprise. And as far as I can tell from the history, it just seemed obvious to these scholars that it would have to be, because the phenomenon of disability, again, however we define it, is so complex, so diverse, so rich, you're going to need multiple approaches, you're going to need multiple methods, you're going to need lots and lots of different tools if you want to say something that will actually track the complexity in question. Since the 80s and since disability studies really started getting a hold in higher education, which is I'd mark that as the 90s forward. The areas that are included now are pretty much every field in the humanities and social sciences. You have people in rhetoric who work on disability. You have people in medical anthropology who have a disability studies perspective on stuff. Pick your area and I can give you a few names. And I find this awesome. I was trained by people who did interdisciplinary work and I was also trained by people whose focus was in multiple fields. And I just find it to be the only way to respond responsibly study a phenomenon this complex and a phenomenon that has such profound real-world impacts, whether we look to law, whether we look to politics, whether we look to education, to what happens in the classroom. How we think about disability impacts all of that stuff at the level of the individual and at the level of entire populations. So if I may, I'd like to follow up and ask, and this goes back to the very beginning, in terms of thinking about how we define the body and its value and possibilities through policy choices. So I want to ask, are disability studies beginning to knock on the institutional door? Are we beginning to see this way of thinking and this framing bleeding into those actual places that could have an effect upon the ways in which people function in the world? Yes, though honestly, these sorts of interventions have historically come more from disability activism, disability rights organizations in particular, than they have come from inside the academy. As usual, professors aren't really so great at community organizing. They're not usually so good at wonky policy <laughs> stuff. Lo and behold, they're not leading the charge. I'm so surprised. <laughs> yeah, there's been some very encouraging changes. Even some of the establishment and the National Council of Disability in the U.S. is a great example. You know, if you look at all the sorts of organizing around what became the DDA in the U.K. or in Australia, you know, you can see example after example where this way of thinking about disability from a disability studies perspective is changing policy directly because people are doing the necessary work to pull where the levers need to be pulled. There you go. There's your thesis on Feuerbach. <laughs> well, but Joel started out by saying the professors aren't changing the world. We're still just interpreting it. <laughs> They're changing the people that are changing the world. How about that? Right. It's a second right. order of change. Which I think is one of our main jobs as professors is to change yeah. the people who change the world. Yeah. But I could see when we start thinking along this direction of policy change, it becomes very clear to me why then disability studies must be inherently interdisciplinary because I think philosophers don't alone have the tools it takes to figure out what is the appropriate way to make our environment more open to more different kinds of bodies and so on. Yep. I don't want this conversation to end before I say what I admire about you, Joel, is that Often in interdisciplinary settings, one of the problems we have in a university is a kind of credentialing problem. And also that disciplines tend to have a gatekeeping function in terms of organs of publication and so on. And what I admire about you is you have worked very hard to make sure that there is an academic infrastructure for scholars to be able to 
publish so as to get credentials in this field. Thank you. The work that I have done on that front would have been impossible without the years of labor by people like Teresa Blankmeyer Burke, Eva Feder Kate. Jackie Leach Scully, you know, there's so many people that laid the foundations of the field. It is true that as I was going through graduate school, I was constantly aggrieved and upset at finding myself having to tell someone, oh, yeah, philosophy of disability is a real thing. And then they go, well, where, you know, and there was no yeah. journal at that point, thinking like 2012, there were only maybe three articles in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on Disability. Now there's over 10. There needed to be some institutional scaffolding like a journal, like book series, like putting on conferences that have funding from NEH or whatever it might be. It, that needed to be out there so that the generation of grad students coming up now and the ones after that don't have to start from the point of proving that what they're doing is legitimate. Right. I don't want anyone to have to waste any more time ever doing that again. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, Joel, a lot of times when we're talking about many areas of interdisciplinary studies, people will say this is a critical discourse. And I think they say that in the negative sense, <laughs> by which I mean, it's not actually offering anything positive, right? It's not positing anything. And so I just want to give you the opportunity to tell us what are the positive contributions? What are the theories? What are the concepts? What are the principles that have been generated out of this field of study? Yeah, I'll list a few. One we already talked about, I think the concept of misfitting and the very complex philosophical architecture around that concept that people like Rosemary Garland Thompson have developed. I think that that's extremely useful and transferable to all sorts of areas of philosophical inquiry. I think the concept of the normate, that's another term that Rosemary Garland Thompson coined, is extremely useful mm -hmm. as a framework to think about how assumptions concerning normality can function ideologically, how they can function at pre-reflective levels, such that they not only have impacts on individuals' actions or habits, but have impacts on institutional structures. I think the concept, this is directly from Elizabeth Barnes's 2016 book, The Minority Body, the concept that we can and we should understand that there is nothing about bodies in and of themselves that define ability or disability. So a slight variation on what we were talking about a, a bit ago. This, I think, is an extremely powerful tool for anti-racist work, for anti-sexist work, for all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of implications that follow from what, at first blush, might seem like narrow claims about disability and embodiment that I think are actually deep claims about embodiment full stop. And this happens over and over again. You know, I'll cite just a few more greatest hits. Susan Wendell's book, The Rejected Body, I think has not remotely been mined enough for all of its insights in philosophy and in WGS studies. I still think to this day that Eva Kate's Love's Labor, 1995, is a book that should have changed the entire landscape of political philosophy in the United States. <laughs> it didn't because I think not that many people read it. And at the time, there were still debates of like, is feminist philosophy real? Yeah. I'm old enough to have found the old web pages for that. I wasn't reading them <laughs> at the time. But we know which blogs that sort of discourse was happening on in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is all to say there are multiple concepts in philosophy of disability and disability studies more broadly that I think would have a massive impact on most of philosophy, should have. Following from that, one of the hats I have on in philosophy is I work in medieval philosophy, and I have been really impressed by the number of scholars who are now coming to medieval philosophy with the questions of ableism and disability in mind. And what I find most interesting about their work is that it is not just, as Lee put it, critical, saying, hey, look, Thomas Aquinas was an ableist bastard, but rather, as you said, Joel, and I think this is really important, that in pointing out the ways in which Aquinas might theorize about and talk about what today we would call disability, because he didn't have a single word for this, yeah. we come to learn an awful lot about Aquinas's thought about 
the body, for example, the importance of the body in a theological setting, and the importance of the body philosophically, or lack thereof. And I think that in many ways, not only do scholars in medieval philosophy who are focusing on issues in this area perform an important critical project, but they provide a really, I think, exciting hermeneutic lens by which to open texts in medieval philosophy that otherwise wouldn't be opened in this way without this approach. Absolutely. And I think that what you just described regarding more and more medievalist taking on disability as at least a theme, that exemplifies why disability studies keeps growing. Because in my view, it doesn't really matter if you're studying 6th century BCE Mesopotamia or you're studying... I don't know, hardcore metaphysics, muriological work, because you're really worried about when the car drives into the garage, at what point is it in? <laughs> Whatever you're doing, I think <laughs> I worry about that all the time. That's, you know, a big stressor. The people fighting over whether or not a Pop-Tart is a calzone. And it is a calzone, and I will fight to the death that it's a calzone. But it's just not a calzone that you really want to eat. I think I lost the thread entirely there. Big calzone callers. <laughs> But if I can follow the one side of that that I just laid out, so if a philosopher reads Kant and comes to the understanding that Kant was ableist, which I haven't really thought about it, but my guess is he probably was. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. why don't I just say, well, he was just a man of his age and leave it at that? Well, I mean, you kind of already gave the answer. Those sorts of explanations then bar you from learning about how assumptions about ability and disability are always forming people's thoughts, mm. whatever they are working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, I'm just I'm so tired of the throwing the baby out with the bathwater move. It seems to me one will only be enriched as a thinker, however critical or not one assumes oneself to be, by digging into and digging through historical figures and historical texts. And you brought up Heidegger earlier, so I'll bring it up. This move of like, why don't we just never study Heidegger again? Why don't we write him out of the canon? He was written in. He can be written out. I understand the feeling there, and I get that as a response. But I think that that will pull tools away from us that we mm. could be using to understand how we find ourselves in the world right now and fix it. I think it will backfire. I guess it would be a different way to put it. I think it will actually keep us from better understanding the world such that we can make it better in the future. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Well, everyone, it looks like Noel is making a final call. And Joel, any final thoughts for us? But Joel, before you answer that, and maybe to make that question more specific, what I'm really curious about is what do you think are the most important issues, questions, and themes in the philosophy of disability and disability studies right now? There are three responses to that. The first one is I think that ableism as a phenomenon still needs way more attention and philosophical work. I just think we are not anywhere near being clear on what precisely it is and how it impacts the world. I look forward to continued work in this area. The second item I would say is that up until this point, most work in philosophy of disability, I think, has done an extremely poor job or just completely ignored talking about debility and debilitation, which we mentioned earlier. And especially talking about it in the context of ongoing debates in political philosophy, whatever pocket of it you want to pick. And I think, I hope that more work starts being done in that sphere. I think it would be very beneficial. And then last but not least, one thing I do hope happens with the field is that it gets even more interdisciplinary with respect to the research that it is relying upon to make its arguments. Although I, of course, sometimes write papers where 
I make a move in a philosophy circle and I'm only citing philosophers, I assume we've all done that. A lot of the debates in philosophy of disability have such wildly high stakes for debates going on in law, for debates going on at the level of mm -hmm. development, for debates going on in these other areas. I hope that as the field continues to grow, there's an increase in work that is really doing the hard-hitting interdisciplinary research. I just think that will benefit everyone. And if I could ask you a kind of follow-up question, what are the actual changes that within academia need to be made to address disability concerns? Hmm. Well, one very simple answer is that I do hope more and more colleges and universities start having courses on the books for philosophy of disability. I'm writing an intro to the field right now for polity. It will theoretically be done within the next year. You don't have to use that book, though. But if you do, I won't be mad. <laughs> but I do think that would be a benefit. A good intro to disability studies class is very different from a good intro to philosophy of disability. And I would like a world in which both of those are available to students in higher education. Before you complete your answer, can I just tell you that I'm asking more about real world changes, like providing texts of lectures. Oh, 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 oh. But also, there is a massive amount of work to be done to increase basic accessibility. But your first answer is still good. Georgetown University, for example, partially this is just a fact of the geography of the campus. It is extremely difficult to navigate using a wheelchair they have done some work to try and fix this. There are some old buildings that are exempt from ADA, but there's many further steps that need to be taken. And inside of the classroom, and I've seen this happen in real time with some of my students, you know, if there's a video, I always have a transcript for it. Yeah. And actually, a library staff at Georgetown has normalized this as a practice. Like, of course, you need to have a transcript along with video. And my ability to get Braille for someone who might need Braille, that's imperfect, but it has improved from what it used to be. There's all these very concrete accessibility steps, many of which these days are honestly not hard to pull off. <laughs> like transcripts yeah. is like a great example. Um, that's not that time or labor intensive to do. And you should just provide it by default. Don't make students ask. Use principles of universal design. You want things to be as accessible to as wide of a range of people as possible by default, not as based upon someone having to make a request. That's the backwards way of doing it. So there's a long way to go. Well, Joel, I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the things that I promised to our listeners that we will do for this episode is provide a transcript. Yay. We have not done that so far. And in advance of talking to you today, I was feeling very guilty <laughs> about that. And I'm happy to say that for our listeners, we will provide a transcript of this podcast. That's really what I'm here for. <laughs> what I'm here for is to make you feel guilty. So, so mission accomplished. Gotcha. Well done, sir. <laughs> I also want to say to our listeners that we would really appreciate it if you could support this podcast and the work that we're doing here by visiting our Patreon page. It's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. We have several different levels that you can sign up for there. And apropos of this episode, your support will help us look at the ways in which our website could be more accessible and our podcast could be more accessible as well. Joel, I also want to thank you. It's been really interesting talking with you. I've learned a lot and I guess I'll call a cab. While the cab's coming, last thoughts, Joel? A final thought is just to give a shout out to my family. You know, I came into myself being disabled later in life through psychological and psychiatric things, but my whole life I lived with a family who all of the members had disabilities of various sorts, and all of what I do, I hope, is a testament to their lives, and I hope contributes to trying to make the world a less ablest, better place. That's at least what I hope. So my thanks to my dear family for really everything. We so appreciate having you here, Joel, and thanks so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Y'all are awesome. Thank you.